Our dear Heavenly Father, we are incredibly grateful that you show yourself uh, to be a God who is uh, sufficient in and of himself. You depend on nothing and on no one for your existence. And in that, you declare yourself to be God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, the one who keeps steadfast loves for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgressions and sins. I do pray that as we look at the Psalms today, that your spirit would stir our hearts to worship you. I pray that we would see how you work in the world, how you demonstrate your character, and I pray that we would learn to trust you through it. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In 1996, there was a Christian rock band that formed by the name Seventh Day Slumber. And they got their title from Genesis 2, where scripture says, On the seventh day, God rested. And although they are a little bit of an older group, uh, they have still been making music even to the present time. And although I used to listen to them a little bit when I was younger, I kind of lost track of them, and then by chance uh, found one of their albums that they produced in 2022. And it was a very, if you like uh, grungy rock, you'll enjoy the album. If you don't like that, you probably won't. The title of the album, though, is Death by Admiration. And... As I listened through it the first time, I said, wow, that's a really good album. Musically, it was solid. I enjoy a good rock tune, and that was full of it. And I listened to the lyrics, I'm like, these are pretty good. I, I like them. I definitely enjoy them. And so I listened to it a couple of times and then went on, and I showed it to my brother, which is highly unusual. Uh, usually he shows me new music and not the other way around. And so he took it, and he went online, did some research on it, and he's like, dude, you got to take a look at the, the author's story. And as it turns out, the writer of this album, uh, the main person who composed the lyrics, had a very difficult childhood. He had a very damaged relationship with his father, and that led him to a lifestyle uh, by the age of 14 or 16 he was already addicted to several different types of drugs, and a couple years after that, became a drug dealer. Um, and it wasn't until he was about 20 or 22 when he was in the back of an ambulance being rushed to the hospital because of an overdose on cocaine that he started to experience something. He started remembering something about what he had learned as a child, something about the presence of God flowed over him in that moment. And he said, I can't keep living like this. And although the next many years were difficult, uh, breaking any kind of addiction is not easy, he started finding ways to work through it. And in fact, at one of his concerts, after he had formed the band, his dad happened to be there. And he actually called his dad out and said, over the past couple of years, we've had some difficulties. But now, uh, we have a repaired relationship. He had been working with his dad, reconnected with his dad, and invited him to that concert. And it was a beautiful moment that people were able to experience, and there was a lot of healing that happened. 
And from that moment, when he began to change, he actually started working with programs to help troubled youth, to give them an option they may not have had that he needed. And when we have this background information, when we hear about the story, about where he was in his life, and then we listen to a song, we get a different appreciation. I just want to pull the lyrics from a couple, from uh, one of these songs. Uh, It's the second song on the album titled Fatal Love. He said, I know it's hard to take. I felt the same. This will all pass away. Addiction is hard to break because it feels like the weight of the world is crashing in. You're hanging on by a thread, fighting the voices in your head saying, give in, give up. It's hopeless. But just know that the battle is won. You're not alone in this world. Hold on another moment. Say goodbye to fatal love. We should have left you a long time ago. Walking away is tough, but we're breaking the grip because enough is enough. I faced impossible odds, putting my trust in a God who healed my deepest wounds. And I know that the battle is won. You are not alone in this world. Just hold on another moment. When I first heard that song, before I heard his backstory, I said, yeah, that's a pretty good tune. I should listen to it again. When I heard his backstory about this expressing where he was and how he tries to walk beside people who are going through the same thing he did, It gives me a different appreciation for the song, as well as a deep respect for the artist sharing his heart and working to walk beside people where he once was. But this is a small idea in comparison to what we're looking at today. It's one thing to have a deep respect, to learn some background, to have a deep respect for someone. It is an entirely different situation. When we, when we learn the background, begin to give ultimate worth, worship, to someone. But that is exactly what the Psalms help us Over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at different psalms and how they help us uh, to communicate with God, to pray. We've looked at prayers of gratitude that says, I remember when you did this for me, and I want to turn and thank you. We looked at psalms of help where we said, dear God, if you don't help in this moment, I'm not sure I'm going to get through this. And today we're going to look at a psalm through the lens of worship. And specifically, this psalm that we're going to look at is going to show us the character of God in his work, leading us to a response of adoration. Psalm 111, it comes um, in the middle end of the book of Psalms. And there is no author attributed to it. We don't know when it was written. We don't know where it was written or at what point in time it was written. 
Uh, but we do know just what this author is asking us to consider. He says in verse 1, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all those who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty are his words, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works by giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hand are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his people forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The very first thing that the psalmist calls us to recognize is that God is worthy of praise. And he tells us some ideas about how to worship. At its core, at the beginning of its origin, worship literally meant to ascribe worth to something. If something was worthy, then it was to be worshipped. Worth ship. Okay. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. First idea about worship is that it begins in our heart. Anytime in Scripture that an author uses the word heart, they're not talking about the physical organ. When they thought about anatomy and how it might have worked, they assumed because your heart would pound when you were thinking or when you were doing something, that it was the seat of where you thought. They believed that it was the core of who you are. It's not just the seat of your emotion, although that was part of how they thought. They said, when I think about the heart, it is the core of who I am. What makes me, me. What makes you, you? And so the psalmist is saying, when you want to understand worship, if you want to understand worship, then it begins in the core of who you are. You see, although that there's going to be a history that we have to look at that, said, that spans back a couple thousand years, and none of us were around back then, uh, it be, worship begins with us. But it doesn't stay with us. Because as soon as the psalmist says, with my whole heart I will worship the Lord, he immediately goes on to say, in the congregation of the upright, in the assembly. Worship is first and foremost personal. It begins with us. But it does not stay with us. In fact, what we do on Sunday mornings, we don't just gather to have a good time, although that's part of it. 
We gather to say hey to friends that we haven't seen in a little while, but most importantly, why we gather together is to worship God. But this leaves us with a significant question, and probably two significant questions. First of all, why does God deserve worship? If, worth, if worship is ascribing worth to something, what makes God worthy? And the second question that this psalm helps us answer is, what are healthy ways for us to respond in worship? What does that actually look like? And the rest of the psalm goes through uh, these ideas. And the first one that he gives us is uh, in verse 2. Praise God for his great works. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. First and foremost, the psalmist says, if you want to worship God, if you want to know why he's worthy to be worshipped, think about the works of God. He characterizes them as great. They're not just things that happen and they go under the radar. They are significant and worthy of note. From the beginning of humanity, God has not ceased to do work. God created the world that we see around us, and he declared it good. But every step of the way, from the moment God created the world to the moment that he created us, he was at work. From the moment he created us to the moment we turned our backs on him, God was at work doing his great work. From the moment we turned our backs on God to the moment he sent his own son, God was doing great work in the world. He did his great work by calling his uh, people out of the land of Egypt. We're going to get to that in a moment, this idea of redemption. He called individuals like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, Moses. He called out people like uh, Deborah and Barak and so many other individuals to partner with him in accomplishing his purpose in the world. And from the moment that he sent his son, even to the present day, God has continued to do his great work in the world. And when we look at this uh, great overview of what God has done, uh, people who talk about God call this the history of salvation. What God has done, the great work God has done to accomplish his purpose in reconciling us to himself and bringing us back to himself. And this overview of history helps us see that God does not reserve his best work for one person, for five people, or for a small group of people. Because God has been at work through history, time and time again, we get to see that the great works of God are for those who are called by him, for anyone who calls on him, not just for a few. And it's not just big picture thinking that God concerns himself with. He does have a plan for history. He does have a purpose, and he does bring that to accomplishment. And that does make him worthy of worship. But on an individual level, God is concerned with the small things in our lives. We just finished our week of prayer this week, and every day, 
people got together in the seats where you're at, praying for each other, praying for our community, praying for uh, themselves, that God would do a great work in their lives. You see, God is concerned with the big overarching ideas and with the small things. And if you did come to, uh, to the week of prayer, I do want to give you a word of encouragement. Uh, diligently look for the ways that God fulfills those prayers. It might be easy enough to ask God for something, but it is sometimes possible that we miss when he does that great work in our lives. And we attribute it to something of chance or dedication or luck. And when we attribute God's great work to chance, we miss the opportunity to turn that into a moment of worship. Because when we remember and we see how God is at work in our lives, when we see how God is at work in the life of a family member, in the church, in our community, in our workplace, wherever we might be, that becomes an opportunity to say, dear God, I recognize your good work in this moment, and I will worship you for that. I'm ascribing you worth above everything else because I see that you made this happen. And I also want to speak for a moment to those of you who have questions about how you can know whether something is from God or not. Maybe you're a little bit skeptical of God to begin with, uh, and you're not sure why you're here in person or why you joined online. Or maybe you've been a long-time Christian and you just need a little bit of encouragement. There's a theologian from the 16th century, uh, someone who helps us think about God, and what he says helps us process God's work in our lives, how to recognize that. He writes, you will never love God as you should. You will never give yourself wholly or willingly to God until you begin to recognize that everything good in your life comes from the fatherly care of God. If something in your life is good or has produced something good in your life, that's probably God doing his good work in your life. It's safe to say when something good happens and you're able to see some good result come from that, that that is a gift of God's great work in your life. And that is a moment that we can turn and say, dear God, I recognize this and I worship you for that. As we looked at the beginning, you can learn a lot about by a musician or even an artist by the work they produce. Uh, you get to see something of where they were, where they've been, and where they're going. And in the same way, with the work that God does, he reveals something about his character. And from verse 3 all the way to verse 9, some six or seven verses, the author of this psalm shifts from, here's God's work in the, in the world, in history, and in your life, to here's how you can interpret 
that good work, that great work in your life. His point is we praise God for his character in action. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. We praise God for the splendor and majesty in his work. God's splendor and majesty has to deal with who he innately is, something about his character, and how that gets, how that relates, how he relates that to you and I. We get to experience God's work. We get to experience the character of God through his work. For example, although God is infinite in presence, presence, meaning he transcends time and space, all things are present before him. Although that is true, it is also true that he is the most accessible person, the most accessible being in the universe. In fact, if you've joined us for our Thursday night groups uh, before, you know we're going through a study on the heart of Christ, which is he's gentle and lowly. Gentle meaning that he's uh, the most welcoming person in the world. He's not standing there with a pointing finger. He's there with open arms. And to, uh, to say that he's lowly means that he's the most approachable being in the universe. You don't have to get through 50 layers of security to get to Christ. In fact, Christ himself came to us. When we think about the infinite knowledge of God and his infinite power, we get to see, we get to experience those through what he does in his perfect knowledge, in his perfect capacity to work according to his character. He knows exactly the right thing we need. And in his goodwill and in his capacity, he accomplishes that We also praise God for his gracious character expressed in wondrous deeds. We've talked about grace recently, and grace is this idea that God doesn't treat us the way we treat him. God treats us better than what we deserve. Anytime God has worked in history, there is grace at work. Sometimes it doesn't seem like there is. But in every circumstance we've ever experienced in our life, God treats us better than what we could ever expect. He doesn't treat us the way that we treat him. It's easy for us to look when somebody hurts us that we want to say we want to hurt you back. God treats us very, very differently. And because he's the most gracious person imaginable, he's most worthy of worship. But the psalmist also says, we praise God for his merciful character expressed in wondrous deeds. I've started understanding mercy a little bit better. Mercy is that quality of God that stirs him up to relieve those who are miserable, to bind the wounds of those who are hurting, and to welcome people who who have missed the mark, to 
welcome back people who have overstepped the boundaries. It is the heart, that heartbeat, that moves him to welcome sinners back into his own presence. When we look at people who have had power, no such grace or mercy has ever existed. When we uh, compare what the psalmist says to what people around him believe, higher powers to be. When you study the ancient mythologies that said, here's what we think the gods are like, all of it was based on, if you're at the top of the rung, you can do whatever you want, and if you're near the bottom or middle, you have to do things not to tick off the people above you. There was no grace from the top down. There was no mercy from the top down. But the psalmist says, when you think about God, you cannot compare him to what your previous category of experience is. You have to think differently. You have to create a new form. And when you start to understand the grace of God, when you start to understand the mercy of God, something will stir in your soul that says, God is worthy of worship. The psalmist also says we praise God for his generosity. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has given his people the power of his works in giving the nation, in giving them the inheritance of the nations. Generosity is both a quality and a capacity in God. This looks back a little bit to when God brought his people out of the land of Egypt and they walked around in the desert for 40 years. Day after day, his people tested him. They said, are you actually good enough to be able to give us food? Do you have the capacity to actually provide for us? And God, in his grace and mercy, demonstrated his generous heart. He gave them manna to eat day after day. He gave them quail when they wanted meat to eat. When they were out of water, he made springs flow from rock. His generosity was manifested in providing what they needed when they needed it. Not only does he have the quality that says, I will give you, though it costs he also has the capacity to be able to carry that out. It's one thing if somebody's generous, but they don't have the means to carry it out. It's another thing if people have the means to be generous, but they don't have the character quality to do it. In God, both of those merge together to say, God is the most generous person in the universe and the one most capable of being generous. And in our own lives, when we look to see just how good God has been, going back to what we said earlier, when we begin to recognize that every good thing in our life comes from God, that is God's generosity at work. That is his character and his capacity saying, I want to give you what's best for your soul. And when God gives us those good things, that is a moment where we get to look, turn back, The psalmist continues, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. These are established forever 
to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. There's three big ideas from this, uh, these couple of verses. First thing that the psalmist says is, we praise God for the eternal establishment of his faithful works. His faithful works are eternal, and that makes him worthy of praise. God is the most trustworthy being in the universe. If we uh, go back and look at some of those mythologies that were the norm for thinking when this psalmist was writing, you could not trust the people upstairs. You could not trust the gods of the Canaanites or the gods of the Hittites or the gods of Egypt. Because at one moment, things were going well, and you thought, hey, the gods are pretty happy with me, we're doing good. The next moment, they attributed an earthquake, they attributed famine, they attributed all these terrible things to disfavor with these deities. And what the psalmist is saying here is, you can't put this category on God. When God does a work in your life, it's not something that's flimsy or that's uh, easily changeable based on what you and I do. God's work is the most trustworthy, the most established work that we can experience. It's of a better quality. It's eternal. It lasts forever. And this goes along with what comes next. He, uh, the psalmist says, we praise God for the eternal establishment of his just works. Although justice can be a bit of a hot topic right now, the psalmist is saying God has a view of history that allows him to do what's right time after time after time. You and I are bound by a finite understanding. We can have one perspective on a situation, but five days later when we gain more information, we sometimes have to shift how we think to make our, uh, our thoughts more just, to make them more right. In God, his works are just because he has a full view of history from beginning to end. He has a full view of your life. He has a full view of my life to be able to say, this is the best thing for you. You may not be able to see it yet, but this is the best thing for you. This is the best thing for history. And even more than this, the psalmist says, God is worthy of praise for the eternal establishment of his trustworthy precepts. I don't know the last time we used the word precept in our normal day-to-day -day conversation. Um, I certainly have not. But it's connected with the covenant that God establishes. And the covenant that God established was a promise to us to be our God and that we would be his people. So let's think about this this way. God's eternal promise is most trustworthy. Every promise that God has ever made, he fulfills. I have made promises before and failed to fulfill them, uh, whether due to um, the ability to carry it out or the memory to remember I was supposed to do it in the first place. And maybe you've been in the same boat where you failed to uh, fulfill a promise or somebody has failed to fulfill a promise to you. With God, the eternal promises that he makes, he is able to do above and beyond what we can imagine. 
He's able to fulfill those, and he cares enough to do so. There's not a single promise that you can find that God will bring, because God's promises are eternal. They are trustworthy. All right. Because God's works are just, because they are trustworthy, because that is an expression of God's character, the psalmist says, God is worthy to be worshipped. And one of the last reasons that the psalmist gives us for being able to worship God is this. He sent his redemption to his people, and he has commanded his eternal covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. God is most worthy of worship because he sent redemption. He's most worthy because of his redeeming act. I said at the beginning, we don't know who wrote this psalm. Uh, We don't know when they wrote it, and we don't know what circumstances they wrote it around. But very often in the Old Testament, when authors talk about God's redeeming work, they're looking back to the exodus from Egypt when God brought his people out of the house of slavery. And he said, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by the character qualities that God has, he did this very thing. He purchased this people for himself, and he made them his own. Standing where we're at and looking back 2,000 years, there was another act of redemption that we get to look back on. As Christians, we get to see when God sent redemption in the flesh. God didn't send a theoretical idea to hypothetically buy us back from problems. He sent a person, his only son, who was most beloved. And he sent his son not to redeem us from slavery, from a nation, He sent Christ to reconcile us to himself, to redeem us from the house of sin and death. What trajectory we were on in history is that we were on a path away from God. And in that moment in history, God meets us and begins to bring us back to himself through his son. And because God sent redemption, because he made us his people. He is most worthy of worship. The psalmist closes with this idea, and uh, we'll also close with it. Um, He gives us a healthy worship lifestyle response. How to respond healthy and how to make it a lifestyle. The author writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Now, I did find it very uh, interesting that the psalmist, after extolling God's uh, character for eight verses, nine verses, then goes on to say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And 
by happen chance, I was reading through a book, and it made a very interesting observation about wisdom. He said, what if wisdom isn't just applied application? In one sense, wisdom is knowing when to apply the right thing in your life. There, uh, there's a time where you need to say something, and there's a time where you need to be silent. The difference is wisdom, knowing what time is right to be silent versus what time to say something. Okay, that is one aspect of wisdom. But this author said, in the context of God's promise to us, the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom isn't just a theoretical idea. In fact, it connects directly in the same way redemption does. Wisdom ceases to be how we work our way to God, how we uh, practically live life so God accepts us and becomes a human being to live the life we should have lived, to bring us back to our Creator. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that wisdom is a person. As we have a reverent awe for God, which is what fear means, we begin to experience a relationship with the wisdom of God, with the person who is the wisdom of God. And in that moment, it takes the idea of salvation in history down to a personal level that says, it wasn't just for the whole world, it was for me. It was for you that God became man. And so a healthy question that we get to ask is have we had this connection with Christ? Uh, do we have a healthy connection with the wisdom of God? This reverent awe for who he is and how he has uh, worked in the world. And I'll close with this idea because once we do, we understand, we resonate with this idea, God is to be eternally praised. John Calvin, a 16th century uh, theologian, said this, If then we would, be, uh, we would meaningfully acknowledge God as creator of heaven and earth and as the Father Almighty, we must first rely on his providence, meaning the way God generously guides history, then ponder his mercy and his kindness in our hearts and extol and praise him with our lips. We must honor, have a reverent awe for, and love so good a Father, devote ourselves entirely to his service, and accept all things from his hand, even those which seem to benefit us least. Judging that when we suffer adversity and affliction, his providence does this for our salvation, for our good. Thus, come what may, we should never doubt that he will be favorable to us and that he dearly loves us. When we understand the character of God, when we experience the character of God at work in our lives, it begins to make sense that everything good in our life comes from God. And all of those moments where we experience his grace, where we experience his mercy, where we experience uh, his steadfast promises 
those become opportunities for us to say, you are worthy, O God, of all the glory, of all the honor, and of all the praise. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have shown yourself to be like this. I do pray that your spirit would do a good work in our hearts and in our minds. I pray that we would be able to see your character through how you work in our lives. I pray that we could see your gracious character, that you treat us better than what we deserve, that you don't treat us the way we treat you. I pray that we could sense your mercy that says you want to relieve the problems, the pain that we experience. I pray that we could uh, experience your trustworthiness, your justness, your uh, holiness, and I pray that in all these things, Christ would be glorified in a way that we get to say with all those who have come before us, great is the Lord and worthy to be praised. We love you and we trust you, and it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.